Welcome back to the next episode of EYC. The episode today will be a little different as we welcome Tom Demon to the mic to share a substantial industry experience as well as significant academic experience working with engineering students as a career advisor and much more. Tom received his bachelor's and master's of science in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan Dearborn. Following that, he worked for Chrysler Corporation, what is now Domatic, and then Steelcase, totaling over 30 years of experience. After Steelcase, Tom went to Grand Valley State University to lecture, assist with the internship program, and mentor in the Career Center. In 2017, Tom moved back to the east side of Michigan to work at the University of Michigan's Career Center while getting to spend much more time with his grandkids. Tom's mentorship has helped many already, and we hope to amplify that by having him on the show today. Tom, welcome to EYC. And we're back with the next episode of Engineer Career. Brennan on the line. Brennan, how's it going, man? Good to see I'm you. I'm doing good. I'm here. I'm still still in the work clothes. That's feeling that's that's clothes. what the timing is today. I'm feeling fancy. Okay. Working late. Working late. Feeling fancy. Working working later. Late later than I was, but mm. that's okay. Hey, there you go. Sometimes it feels good to to stay in the work clothes. You know, feel feel productive. I know. I know. It's better than sweatpants and a t-shirt. At least it looks better. That's true. Yeah, looking good on the audio, sounding good on the audio. Brandon's got that deep voice. But anyway, so on the show today, we've, we're going to have a guest that you know I've been really excited about. I, I met Tom a long time ago, um, and you know we've interacted briefly. I, I just I had such great connection with him that I, I always wanted to bring him on the show because he's got a history that I think a lot of people are going to find of value. And so with that, Tom, welcome, welcome to the show. Really glad that you're here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Tom, you know, I think just to kind of get people as excited as I am about this episode, I think maybe if you can just kind of walk us through your history, um, I guess, you know, start us, start us back to I don't know, younger Tom, younger days, and, and, and kind of bring us up to speed on who you are and what your experience with industry and students is. I'd be happy to. Uh, I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and went to junior college there before I then went on to get my uh, bachelor's in mechanical engineering from University of Michigan, Dearborn where I also then had a great opportunity. I co-opted at Chrysler Corporation undergraduate and was offered uh, two programs at Chrysler among a couple other offers. It was a good time for mechanical engineers, but I selected the Chrysler Institute of Engineering where I stayed right at University of Michigan Dearborn and got my master's also in mechanical engineering and also had rotating uh, assignments of work at Chrysler Corporation. That's great. That sounds like a really cool experience. So it was like a rotational, but also while still doing your master's degree. Absolutely. So very experiential. And I had some input as to what uh, area I would be working in. So I had uh, three undergraduate co-op assignments uh, in manufacturing at Chrysler and then eight in their research and development area. So I had 11 experiences before I even completed my master's. That is a lot of different experiences to have, uh, especially before even completing your degree. So I, I, times have changed a little bit, I think, but it's still, yeah. it's still good. People can still get co-op experience, uh, maybe just not uh, 11 of them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At least one. Yeah. So then did you went to Chrysler right after your master's then? Or I guess you were still, were you technically an employee during your master's? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I was a salaried employee. It's, it was a wonderful program. Yeah. Uh, quite frankly, after I completed it, I had uh, a few opportunities to look at the history of Chrysler and realize that they had some downtimes about every three years throughout most of their life. So you pretty much had to get two promotions because you'd probably get knocked back one when the third year hit. And that just, and my home was Grand Rapids. So I went back to Grand Rapids Okay, and I got a job in the material handling industry for a number of years. Okay. So this was pretty recently after you finished your master's. Very recently. Very recently. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that, that, that cyclic thing is, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. We've had, you know, Adam, I think a previous guest of ours comment that similar thing, like be cautious of your industry cycles. If you're trying to do something, it's not a bad idea to try and look in the timing of your industry because sometimes it can bite you and, you know, you kind of want to be ready for it. So, but sometimes you can use it to your advantage. So Adam, the previous guest actually did a similar thing. He, he moved back home or, you know, he kind of changed and used that, I don't know, that maybe un, un or un desired circumstance as an opportunity and able to do something positive with it. So that's nice for you to go back to, to the West Michigan too. That's great. So you it said was. material handling or what were you doing there? Uh, I, yes, I worked in material handling uh, first for Rapistan, then now Dematic. It was okay. Monathman Demag when I worked there. And then that was about 10 years. And then I spent 17 years at Steelcase. And then I went to Grand Valley State University okay. and had 15 years there. It seems like I'm really old. <laughs> A lot of good experience. I mean, just for those, so material handling is like Amazon warehouses, like designing material, material movers, right? And then Steelcase yeah. being the huge furniture company. Yeah, Steelcase had a wonder, uh, a wide variety of assignments. Uh, but most of my uh, switches in employment, I, I had to start back as an engineer each mm-hmm. time and kind of prove myself as a person and a technical person first before they would put me into management. But most of the time, uh, of the 30 years in industry, I spent probably about 70% of that in some sort of leadership of projects or departments or groups. Okay. So you would you would say you maybe went more down the management track than the, the technical track as like yeah, a technical well, specialist? Or? Back to undergrad to grad, I, I probably should have, could have, would have for my personality and what I did the next 30 years got my MBA. And that was the other Chrysler opportunity. But I've always enjoyed product development. Uh, rather than manufacturing personally. And uh, the masters I didn't really uh, use a lot (laughs) during my 30 years in industry. But then when I went to Grand Valley, and now I've been working at University of Michigan doing career advising for engineering students, I wouldn't have had those opportunities without that master's in engineering. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I guess so it's the end, it's the end of steel case time. And, you know, or, well, and you're, you're kind of seeing that maybe you're going to do something different. I guess let's, let's talk about what made you think to go back into academia. I guess, I mean, we'll call it academia, right? but it's, it wasn't necessarily teaching. So I guess I'm curious to your thoughts on how that all worked. Well, every semester had some element of teaching. So I was not a tenure track professor. Okay. I worked mostly in the career center, okay. but there was an element of teaching every semester. We can oh, talk okay. about that a little bit, but back to the, to the decision when I, was a senior undergrad, uh, the dean of U of M Dearborn Engineering asked me to teach a couple of lab sections. And uh, I was pretty honored because he was teaching the the lecture and there were four sections of lab and the other lab instructor was a tenured professor, a full professor. And then me, I didn't even have a degree yet, you know, other than an associate's degree. Uh, But I really enjoyed that and it went really well. So my plan was to go out in the industry, my plan coming out of my... uh, my bachelor's was to go into industry for 10 years, ground myself in the real world, and then go go to academia and teach. It just took me 30 years to get there instead of 10. I was, you know, I was being paid well. I enjoyed what I was doing, uh, working with great people, raising a family. You know, I felt very blessed with those 30 years. I'm sure we'll get get into more of uh, of some of the the future planning and things there, but I think that's a really interesting thing of of having a plan of what you wanted to do, um, and not necessarily giving up on that. Like the the opportunities that come along, you know, it was it was 30 years, but hey, I could still go do it. 
yeah. uh, because I had the education or the experience or whatever. So uh, that's awesome. It's something people always keep in mind is you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You could come back to what you originally planned on. It just might take longer than you thought. Towards the end of Steelcase, I was uh, teaching adjunct. I was teaching project management in their master's program. And so they knew me and they knew me as a teacher. And that was the first uh, contract at Grand Valley was to take engineering course teaching responsibility. My first uh, two semesters, I taught engineering. And some of those books I hadn't cracked in 25 years or so. And uh, I was standing in front of a bunch of seniors who just took the prelim class and I was teaching machine design too. And it's kind of like, okay. I, uh, in eight months, I took two days off and I suffered because I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. I should have worked those days. Uh, that's uh, so I didn't, I don't think I necessarily realized that. I didn't realize that when you came back, you were initially teaching. I mean, our interaction was outside of that realm. So yep. it makes sense now, but, um, that's, that's really interesting in that environment. I don't know. It's, it's funny to, to think that because I can totally, I feel like I can put myself in that, that shoes, even those listening. Like imagine like tomorrow you're going to be put in front of a classroom of seniors who had the prereq. That's, that's intimidating. And it's, it's a lot of work to prep. You know, if you're going to talk an hour to a group of people, you know, they say five hours or, or whatever, every time, five hours for every in hour, every time you're prepping a class. So I can imagine that was a ton of work. But it's cool. I, so to, back to Brennan's point, too, that you were also, while you're in, in industry, self-reflecting and saying, you know, this is good. Like, I think that's important, too. Like, while, you, while you're in a job to, to look back and say, OK, like, yeah, maybe it's not exactly it, but this is still really I got a good thing going here. And OK, maybe I don't need to switch yet. And I think I think that's that's really, really great, too. But because ultimately it ended up working out, you know, you're able to still kind of stand up doing the, the teaching part time, too, which is, I guess, an option, too. I didn't even think about that, you know, because you were working full time, right? You were just teaching night classes. Is that? Yes. Yeah, I was working full time. And, and just uh, Steelcase had uh, reductions in workforce. They cut their staff from 22,000 worldwide to about half of that. And I was caught up in that. I was a director at that point of different things in the end of technical learning and development. So I was part of the Steelcase University. And the first four waves of reduction workforce in that era, I was a decider. The fifth wave, I was one of the ones that was excused. But they uh, gave me a nice package of money and health benefits and uh, outplacement services. And I pretty much called up the, the Dean of Engineering, Dr. Paul Plakowski at Grand Valley. And after looking around and taking an interview in industry with really not a heart to continue that, you know, it's kind of like I've been there, done that for 30 years. Let's go, let's do academia. And I said, make me an offer and I'll stop looking. He did, but it was that eight months. It was only a contract to begin with, but I had kind of the backing of the Steelcase package to support whatever financial needs and, and healthcare, et cetera. So I gave it a shot and uh, that was tough. And I had a few other opportunities at Grand Valley the next one was a grant funded one working for with uh, more manufacturing and, and the junior college uh, on a number of programs. And then eventually I got in the career center that where I spent most of my time at Grand Valley working with engineering and computing in Grand Valley State University's career center. OK, so, so tell me a little bit more about that role, I guess. What were you were? Yeah. What, what were your kind of day to day experiences in that? Well, I, I was intimately involved with the co-op and internship programs. Uh, the engineering program at Grand Valley requires three semesters of co-op in a alternating co-op work, study, work, study after they pass their first two years successfully. So I would teach a co-op prep class in the fall 
And uh, eventually we had enough students that I, other professors would teach also, but I led that. Uh, so in the fall I would teach. And then uh, the other two semesters, we had the professors go out and do uh, co-op site visits about three quarters of the way through the co-op semesters. You'd be assigned about 10 students. And every week the student would need to email the, that professor, the assigned professor, in this case me, and I would respond with my suggestions, comments, uh, you know, whatever, and deal with issues, uh, just see how they're doing. Then we'd go out and visit them and actually give them a grade. I would, so the other two semesters, that was my teaching, is through the co-op. On the computing side, they only required a one semester internship and they didn't have a prep class. We would have, I would work with a professor over there and give a presentation about how to prepare for the internship when we get two or three students. So anyway, I helped that part develop a prep class similar to the engineering one, some differences, but basically get them ready to uh, go out there and work. And then we saw students that were prepared. Uh, they knew how to find a job and then had some insights as to how to do well on their co-op assignments. I think that puts you in a really unique place to be able to do that, given that you work so long in industry ahead of time. I, I know uh, some some career centers, uh, you know, maybe have young people who don't have as long industry experience ahead of time or have only worked in academia. And so coming from a, a people leader in management of a company now being like, hey, high or hey, college students, like, this is what you need to do. I actually know what I'm talking about because I had to I had to grade people in the workforce. Um, so did you find that somewhat uh, fulfilling in this aspect of being able to take that real real world experience and kind of hopefully give uh, undergrads sort of a leg up in their in their career hunt? Absolutely. And then that continued when I came to uh, Dexter area, then I had an opportunity to work full time at U of M. And I told him, I don't want to work full-time. I'm semi-retired, you know, I want to do that. So that the first year here, I didn't. But the last three school years, I've worked part-time at U of M. And that was in career, for career advising for engineering students. And I, I tell the students with honesty that I, I'm not always that wise, but I think I have enough experiences that I can usually pull something out that relates to their situation, whether they're succeeding wildly and I'm supportive or they're having problems finding a job or whatever, uh, I can usually find something in my bag of experiences that, that relates. Yes, <laughs> it was, it was good. It was a good uh, set of experiences for me to work in academia. Yeah. And so lucky for the students that you work with too. You know, I mean, I, I, I remember sitting, you know, in, in my life, I've, I've been very fortunate to sit down with mentors that I've I've sat in front of, and I, I felt like, well, it, you know, I'm just, this is helpful, but, you know, not great. But I've also sat down with mentors that I've, I can tell have leaped me ahead way more than I could have ever by myself. And I, I can imagine a lot of the students that you work with were really able to to get a lot of great advice from you in that way. And that's honestly one of the re reasons I'm so excited to have you on the show, because I think a lot of people listening are probably in that similar point where they're an undergraduate student, and they know that life. You know, sometimes people don't think school is life. I would argue it is. Maybe it's because I'm always in school, but um, they, you know, they're leaving, they're, they're senior, they're getting ready, ready to graduate and get a quote unquote real job and all these things. And those are kind of weird times and it's hard. And it's, you know, and, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know and you're trying to learn and soak up as much as you can. And so, you know, I, Tom, I think what I'd like to do is just kind of probe, probe your brain a little bit on, on themes 
from your experience, you know, and, and I, I didn't ask you to prepare anything ahead of time, you know, really it's just, you know, if, if you were to think back with the students you've interacted with, you know, those undergraduate engineering students, what would be some of the key things that you would think that you kind of kind of had to keep telling people? Like what are there, are there key things that it seems like that undergraduate students are just not able to get out of their university experience that they really kind of need before they go in, into industry? Yes. I, I think overall to experience what you think you want to do as soon as you can. And, and that could start way back in junior high school, high school uh, with a job shadow, you know, go, go out there and put your nose into it. Like uh, we talked about a little bit of uh, civil engineering. Great. Sounds like you'd, you'd be a good civil engineer. Well, do you like working outside, <laughs> you know, in the mud, in the rain, in the heat, in the cold, Go out and try it, and you might love it. You might love to be outside. Um, and then as you advance, then internships, uh, co-op. If you think you want to do research, try research. You know, get on a research project and, and see if that's what you like to do. There was a uh, gentleman that I that we dealt with. Uh, I won't even say his name or where it was, but spent 25 years in the chemical manufacturing industry. Hated every day. And now was older and trying to get a different profession going and uh, asked him, why did you do that? My dad wanted me to. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to be that person. You want to find a job you like doing. Right. Yeah. You want yeah. a job that you're not going to like wake up in the morning and dread going into work. I mean, it's not always attainable. Like people talk about it and, you know, and try to find a job you love to do. And people mean that, like try to try to find a job. It may not be possible. Like it's, there's like, there's a chance that you're just, it's just not going to work, but it's definitely not going to work if you don't try. The only way to know if you're going to like something is to do it. As many, you know, career presentations you can go to with companies trying to sell you stuff or whatever, like that is the high level niceties of the job. That does not anywhere touch the details of what you're going to do every day. And so I think your your advice there, get experience as soon as you can, I think is probably the the biggest piece that people can do is you don't know what it's like till you do it. And and like like that example, you don't want to be stuck doing that for 25 years right. uh, and then find out later that this is not what I want to do at all. Right. Well, it's, it's kind of neat to see the, per, the different perspectives. I've worked at universities, one that has mandatory internship or co-op. Got to do it. And I, I really see the benefit. All those students, I mean, I, I can think of the 15 years I spent there, there's probably a handful of students I thought they're not ready to work in their profession. All the rest of them were. I mean, they and they also knew how to find a job. <laughs> uh, we, we'd invest in those co-op or internship prep classes as they were uh, rising juniors or, well, actually sophomores. And then we wouldn't see them because they would go out and work. They knew how to get the co-op job. They were pretty well networked. Uh, a lot of them ended up when graduate upon graduation working for that employer. If they didn't have a great experience, they had friends that worked for other employers. And of course the network in the hallways also was very powerful. That's a great, yeah. So I remember being in high school and looking at Kettering versus Michigan Tech and remembering thinking, well, Kettering has mandatory co-ops. And at the time in high school, I just, I definitely didn't recognize the network bonus of that for sure. Like I thought, yeah, getting some hands-on experience would be good, but I felt like I could get my own co-ops and stuff through Michigan Tech and I ended up kind of working out. But I that's, I think that's a great piece of advice, Tom, for, the, for those listening. I mean, to really realize the value of, I think, Having a university that's dedicating resources to help you 
find and be successful in that job. It is, I think, kind of the big, the biggest difference of the mandatory versus not for me. So, because like in a not mandatory setting, like they'll have career services and stuff, but I, I, I doubt they have the amount of resources in the department trying to help students get and be successful in co-ops um, as opposed to a mandatory. And that's the other part of the experience I've had the last three years is that a research institute where an internship isn't even required or a, re- or a research uh, assignment. And I personally, my personal experience is more on the internship in industry, but I need to respect research. I just don't have that experience. But still, I think I'm highly suggestive to those students in a research institution that doesn't require internship or research to go do it. Sure. Uh, but it's a little bit more on them. Sure, there's resources to help them. And if you're at an institution like University of Michigan, all the employers come there. I mean, at Grand Valley, we had to develop employer relationships, especially with the, uh, the Fortune 100 and, and up companies. At U of M, you just schedule them. <laughs> they all want to come. Did, did you feel like it would pinhole students, though? Like, because so like a student would come in and they would get assigned a company. Like, do you, what, did it ever seem like maybe for maybe the, the, I don't know, the upper half of the distribution that that was hurting them because they were forced to go to this company where they probably could have got a job at a company that would have been a better fit? Um, did you have a lot of that or would you say, you know? I mean, with a mandatory co op? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to, you know, being devil's advocate on the mandatory Mm -hmm. co-op, it being, you know, you're forcing everyone into an assigned position that could limit their potential. Well, it wasn't assigned. It was a free will uh, interview and employment opportunity. We just gave, tried to give the students a foundation to go out and and do that. But they had a interview. They had to make their decision. And uh, we didn't tell them which companies they had to work for. And we worked hard to develop those companies. So in West Michigan with Grand Valley, it was a good gig. Even in uh, 08, 09, uh, I know Troy Farley, my boss at Grand Valley, tells the story that it was almost Christmas time and everybody else was just having fun, kind of laying back. And I was on the phone because I had 17 students that got laid off that month. And they, they had to go back to work in January. And the good news is every one of them got a job. And it's not just on me. You know, I was well supported by our director for the School of Engineering. Anyway, and and the employers of West Michigan. Sure. But uh, yeah, so I think when I think of that, I think of a particular person. I could name him, but I won't. Uh, we even told the students at Grand Valley the philosophy was three semesters, same company. So we kind of, the companies knew that. And uh, there are rare instances where I even helped a student Uh, find a different company. There was one student that comes to mind that we couldn't really hold down to that. And he ended up working uh, for a local aerospace company and then NASA and CERN, you know, in Switzerland. (laughs) And uh, now he's back at NASA full time. And I've been in touch with him a couple of times. He was just, you know, an uh, exemplar student and had a wanderlust. We, We tried to hold him back a little bit, but you know, it was, it was a gentle holdback. It's kind of like, just let them go. <laughs> it's different. It's not the program. But the other example would be this one student that worked two semesters at a company doing Photoshop. I mean, she learned how to do that in two weeks. And then that's all they had her do, basically. And I helped her leave that company and go get an international assignment. Uh, and that, it changed her life. <laughs> I mean, 
She, well, that's the uh, cool part about being involved in it. I mean, you're saying you're going to the employer, you're seeing that. So yeah. as if you have good advisors, which I'm sure you were time, you know, you're, you're able to realize like, Hey, this, this isn't good for them. I mean, it was good for them for the first two weeks, but maybe we got to make an adjustment in helping to. Yeah. After eight months. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, still better that than never, you know, and even having those negative experiences can be very positive. And we talk about that a lot on the show, this idea of going out there and having the experience, if it's negative can be potentially more valuable um, because you learn that you don't want to do that. And that knowledge is incredibly important too. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I, so I think I'm, I, I'm trying to think back to being a first year college student. And if I'm listening to our discussion, I think one thing that comes to my head is like, yeah, well, what if, what if I have no idea what I want to do? Like, okay, you say go get experience, but what if, what if I, I literally have no idea what I want? I was good at math and science. And so people told me to become an engineer. So here I am, you know, I, I've, I've definitely talked to people that have been in kind of that spot too. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on that position and how, how students can work through that? Well, I, th- I think one is to listen to podcasts like this, <laughs> uh, but also there are, tests. <laughs> <laughs> there are tests administered by uh, people a lot smarter than I, although I've done a bunch of that, that test personality, that test skills and try to kind of mine who you are and then align you with jobs that might align with those skills. I mean, the big three in my mind are people, data, and things. And I like all three of them, but definitely people is the strongest one. So hence leadership. And that's what I've always gravitated towards are jobs that require a fair amount of dealing with people. I can do data. You know, for a while I enjoy spreadsheets and calculating things and, but not, forever, not a lot, not always. And then I like to build things. I'm an engineer, so I like to get my hands dirty. But, uh, you know, if I had a choice of hanging out with four people, playing golf or whatever, or rebuilding an engine, (laughs) I'd always pick the golf. More for the social aspect than necessarily the sport. Yeah. That brings out a good, important point of what do you actually like? What what are the areas within engineering that you could do? You know, you could be you could be in management. There are jobs that are going to be more hands on. There are jobs going to be more data focused. There are jobs going to be more process focused. And there you each, I guess, in each each let's call the the engineering majors, you have all these sub disciplines of that, which can some way can be uh, scary because it just multiplies the potential options there are. But also, if you can if you can get a little bit of experience in each of those, you might be able to, to whittle out some now and then that way later, you know, okay, no, I want to do, I want to be the things or I want to be the data or whatever, which can really help you later on. But I think it goes back to having to have the experience to find out what you like and don't like. Right. I think that that's very supportive of what Troy said earlier too. Sometimes the the best thing is I don't like this. Well, then try something different. You know, you take another internship if you didn't like that one or find a different department within that company. And that's kind of what I, I thought was ideal with Grand Valley's program is Three assignments, same company, different departments. Uh, I actually managed the co-op program at Steelcase for a couple of years. And what we would do first semester is put them, first semester of co-op is put them in the model shop or test lab. So they learn the product and some of the function that it had to go through. And then the second one is put them out in manufacturing and figure out how we build it in volume. And then the third one would be product development. You know, with those two foundational pieces, figure out how we design the product and, uh, I thought that was ideal from my perspective. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that's that that has a big mindset towards development. I think when I started as a young engineer or when I when I started in 2007 in college, I felt like 
it didn't seem like it seemed like for a period of time companies went away from that. They weren't so into developing the co-ops because I don't know money and I don't it seemed but it seems like it's coming back though. It seems like companies are realizing that it's good to develop people that yes, you're gonna lose some, but you still gotta develop them because you're gonna make them you're gonna make them better engineers and that's maybe almost a civic duty of the big companies. But um I love people data things. I love that. So you know for those listening that are like I don't I don't even know where to start. Like there's, there's kind of a framework for you. People data things. See if you can go out and find a, a, an option, you know, even when you interview, like, is this a people or data or things type of job? And, you know, start, start somewhere and try if you don't like it. I think, I think that's helpful. Cause I mean, it's hard when you're looking at infinity and saying, which way do I step? It's, it can be, you know, I think maybe it's just the engineering mindset. I think for me, I need frameworks, 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 help me decide. So I think that's great advice. Um, for, for those listening to I really appreciate that. You know, I think, I think and we've talked about this before on the show, like the university is, it's just not set up to do everything. You can't do everything. It can teach equations really well. It can do some other things really well. There's just some things that it doesn't do well. And a lot of that, unfortunately, is around this, how do I get a job? How, you know, I, it's, it's not really designed for that. It's a machine designed to teach knowledge. It's not necessarily a machine designed to get you a job. I mean, it's, that's not its primary purpose. And so I think when undergraduates leave engineering, they, they sometimes are lacking things. And I think we've hit on this big element of like experience, like get experience, like that's helpful. Are there other, are there other aspects of being an, a good engineer that you feel like universities struggling that just so people who are listening know that they need to try to go out of their way to cultivate that in their skill set? Maybe what is a student who exits the co-op program like in Grand Valley, for example, what did they have that someone who leaves university without having that experience has? Like, what's the, what's the difference there that makes someone more or less ready the different skills they've gained while doing it? They're employed. <laughs> and that's a big one. And they're ready to go. They're ready to be, uh, you know. Grand well, yeah, what does that mean, though? You know, like, yeah. Is it ready? yeah, like, I guess, can you, how, how would you define ready to, to go, like? Well, after a year, especially if they go back to the same company they've co-opted with, they have a year of experience. And there was a uh, eight-month senior project also that was typically with a different employer, but a real uh, machine typically that they would have to design, build, and test, and, and then implement. And they wouldn't graduate until that customer for their senior project signed off and accepted it. And there were students that didn't graduate right away for a month or two or three. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I think just, uh, you know, Grand Valley is a little more blue collar. A lot of those uh, bachelor engineers weren't going to go on to get a master's or a PhD. They, they did have a number of masters, but not that many. Whereas like at University of Michigan, a lot of them will go on and get a master's and a lot of them will get into research and PhD. Good stuff. I guess I'd almost answer that based on the corporate perspective. When I was Leading the co-op program at Steelcase, I established three goals. And the first one was clearly, number one, hire the good ones. And, uh, you know, it's it's building your bench. So from a corporate view, you should really have development programs reaching back at least into undergraduate so that when they graduate, you know, they're ready to go at your company and want to go to your company because they have experienced it. Uh, they know of you. The other two are to give something back to the profession. And then the third one is to get some productive work out of them. I mean, I, I, I didn't want to have the students just be reading and studying, you know, whatever subject the supervisor wanted them to. I wanted them to do productive work as much as they could and challenge them, you know, give them a steep learning curve. 
being a part of that process though as they're doing that what are those like specific skills they're picking up is that is that understanding how to function within a within a company is it learning how to communicate is it learning actually like the technical skills that it would take to do a job what are some of those specific things that that those that those students in that time are really kind of getting out of that experience that's helping them later on certainly definitely technical and definitely soft and they're soft skills and they're probably almost equal uh importance as far as what those experiences can give, it would be a little heavier on the soft skills. Of course, a university, as Troy mentioned, can teach equations and how to do calculus well. And then if you get out in industry, a research would probably use calculus a little more. Industry, you know, might not. <laughs> you might not use that at all. But still, the logical problem-solving process uh, and how you do it productively at that company for their product or their process that's a big learning, the technical aspect, and being good at it and getting some confidence in applying whatever you've learned at university, uh, but, but also the soft skills. How do, you, how do you work on a team? How do you work with people? Uh, yeah, you're the junior member in a meeting, but you got an idea. Do you raise your hand? When do you ask a question? You don't want to ask too many questions, but surely you don't want to get stuck in a, a black hole of I don't know how to do this when somebody's sitting next to you who's been doing it for 10 years could probably free you up and get you moving. So that's that's a key one right there is when do I ask that question of my uh, more experienced coworkers? Yeah. The social dynamics part was so interesting to me in, in my experience because when you're in undergrad, there is no technical hierarchy. I mean, there's you and the professor and the professor has all the answers. And yeah, maybe there's a person in the class who's a little bit smarter. You could go and ask a question to, but you get into industry and there are significant tiers of technical knowledge that you can, do I walk to this cube and talk to someone who I know has got 10 years of experience, this, this person who's got 20, but every time I talk to them, they yell at me. So I'm not going to talk to them or they got this person who's super personable, but they're not technically as strong. You know, I'm being generic here, but these it's it's a weird social interaction, a weird social, I mean, that's not a game, but it's like a, a thing that you're doing that you're trying to figure out. And yeah, you don't, there's no experience like that in undergrad that helps you equate to anything like that other than just watching it, sitting at your cube and watching the guy or girl who's got five years experience, go talk to the guy or girl who's got 15 years experience about these types of problems, talking to the other person about these, and you're like, okay, well, I guess that's how I do it. Or being in meetings and realizing, okay, well, that person just asked their hand and the director, she looked at him funny. So I'm probably not going to do that. You know, you, you pick up on these social cues when you're in that environment. And I think, I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing. It's not, it's not chapter one in any textbook you can read. It's experience. How do you relate to people? I can think of a, when we're talking about this, I, I thought of a tool engineer at Steelcase and another gentleman manufacturing uh, that were just really tough, but they were really good. You know, and, and I needed them to supply their knowledge and information on what I was working on. So I kind of uh, just tucked my feathers, you know, down and went and was very humble and uh, nice. <laughs> and we worked together well. But other people would go in there with a little arrogance and didn't work out so well. And that's, that's another thing, too, is have a good attitude, not an attitude. Because uh, I had... <laughs> One employer I really liked. I mean, he was just really good. He was a general manager of a small, well, medium-sized company. And he uh, had a student work for him, and I won't use the exact words, but he basically said that the student was going around and everybody on the floor 
who'd been maybe building this product for 20 years, he kind of like knew more than they did. And he was not asked back. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I saw him at the uh, armory one time. I was there for a golf show and he was working out. He was in the going in the military. <laughs> I don't think he got his engineering degree. <laughs> Yeah, having some humility going to the job, even even depending on your actions, even if you are the more experienced person in certain ways, um, obviously in this example, that was not the case, but even times where you think you may know more, at least at least giving the person the opportunity uh, to, to show that they may, maybe they know more than you or something is is not only smart and getting to opportunity to learn from them, but I think also is a way to make someone feel good about themselves. Like people like being able to share their knowledge and show that, you know, they know something about it. And and hopefully you're you're interacting with someone who who kind of has the same same ideals about that and is kind about it, too. But I have found that, you know, going to someone and and kind of deferring to their knowledge, at least at the start, to say, hey, I think you might know more about this than me. Can, can you help me figure this out or something is at least a good way to help build build relations uh, in the office and in the work environment. And then, you know, kind of kind of build that mutual understanding. So then later, um, you know, they might come to you. But it's important to not, yeah, definitely not be running around pretending you know everything because that that will catch up to you. Uh, even if you even if you don't get fired, it will catch up to you eventually. Yeah, especially in the beginning. I mean, we we Adam talked about it. We've had multiple people talk about how you know the first year, year and a half, you, you're in a sponge mode. Hopefully, you can contribute something. But when you when you join onto a team, there is a significant period of time where you're just learning and you're asking dumb questions and yeah. So I think especially in that initial period of time, it's a really, really important time to be humble and to be asking questions at the right time and figure out that way, but to not to not go around necessarily thinking you, you know as much because experience matters a lot. Like when I was in undergrad, I was kind of confused that you, you go to industry and you realize years of experience is super important. It is one of the huge metrics for, um, I don't know, success in a career. Like if someone has been doing something for 20 years, they're going to be seen as as technically strong or, or really, really good in that area. And I, I came out under thinking, well, like, well, 20 years, what I like, I mean, I, I know all the equations, I know all this stuff, but if you do something for 20 years, you're going to be really good at it. You're going to have seen a lot of stuff. You're going to have talked to a lot of people. That experience is important and industry values that. And don't, so, so when you're joining a company or when you talk to people, respect it too, because there's a reason that a lot of people respect experience, regardless of their technical ability, like experience, um, is it really important? And I, I don't know. I, I just don't think I, I personally uh, realized how important when I first started in industry. Yeah. If you go out there and say, I have a master's in engineering from this wonderful school and you don't, <laughs> you're just poking buttons on a machine. You're going nowhere. But yeah. if you go out there and just say, Hey, uh, what, what's your uh, perspective? What, what can you teach me about how you manufacture this so I can go back and design the next one better? Uh, that's pretty powerful. Another thing I just thought of that I think is important is to have a steep learning curve. I, I took a course uh, in corporate America. It was called Novations, but one of the key takeaways was for the first time, like you said, you're like a sponge and you're, you're challenged. You have a steep learning curve. Uh, eventually, if you keep doing the same thing after years, it, that'll start to taper off and you got to be a little careful that you don't fall down the other side of the slope. And this program actually said it's probably best to change things up every three or four years. Doesn't mean you need to leave the company. Doesn't necessarily mean you need a promotion, but just do something different that challenges you that you want to do. I would agree. I think I've seen that. That's maybe the one case where I've seen people who've been in their careers a long time where 
years of experience hasn't necessarily led to overall mastery uh, because they've they've been doing sort of the same thing or in the same realm and haven't chose to maybe stretch beyond and learn something new. And I think it's the, the people who choose to to do different assignments to make what you'll hear called lateral moves mm-hmm. uh, for everyone listening out there um, to learn something new are like for, for one, those are the people who are eventually getting promoted and moving up. Uh, I think it's hard. It's it's hard to get promoted in place a lot at a lot of companies, especially a large company, um, just doing the same thing. Um, but they're also just more well-rounded and more aware of how the business works, how the product works, um, innovation, and, and making new things. And so, yeah, if you get an opportunity, even if it's not for more pay or or you know a different title, like that, that's a very important step to take to learn something new. My grandpa was not an engineer. He only had an eighth grade education. Became uh, general manager in charge of freight and claim for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. So, I mean, he was a top executive in charge of all of the freight operations for a major railroad in that time. He always did his job well. He was a seven-day-a-week worker, really nice guy, very personable, but he always learned his boss's job well. So it's kind of like, well, you know, his boss moves, gets promoted. Who could do this? Well, Pat knows, you know, how to do that. So that's kind of another tip, too, is Look around. If you've been there a little while, uh, start learning some of the senior people's work uh, and ask to be involved with it, even if that's not your particular assignment. Keep asking questions. Yeah, I've heard that analogy to even dress like your boss um, in that way (laughs) at the level of your boss. I mean, I think people also realize as an analogy to the technical ability too. Sure embody the next position you want to have or, or be supportive of that. So, cause one thing Tom, that you keep bringing up that I want to highlight for people is this idea of thinking about it from the corporate side, thinking about it from the person who's going to make your decision. So in your case, you were in charge of the co-op. Okay. And so you were, you were thinking about, I want these three things to happen as a co-oping student. Like you want to realize that so that you can go into that environment and be successful. And in the same way, when you have when you're an employee, you want to look and be like, okay, my manager, my their boss, their boss, they're going to be looking at me eventually for a promotion. What are they going to be looking at in me to make the next move? What skills do I need to have? How do I make it so that when they have a decision to make, I'm the easy answer? And a lot of that has to do with reflection about how the company sees me. So I, I just... I think that mindset is good. So if you're a co-op student, think about how the company sees you. If you're an employee, think about how the company sees you. And what you need to do to kind of set yourself up for success for that. I mean, I think one of the questions I have is what, what do students need to realize from the company side of things? And I think what I was trying to embody with that question is it's a two-sided thing. Like it's not just you as a student coming in to do the job. Like that's, that's, I think how a lot of students see it. Like I'm going to work to do this thing, but you're trying to be part of the cog of the wheel doing something like you need to be thinking about that too and how you're fitting into that. Um, yeah, what what I'm saying is it, it's hard for me to explain, but I mean, it's essentially this just having a bigger picture mindset is really, really helpful. And I think sometimes as students and as young employees, like you're just so caught up in I'm this employee, I do this thing, but you got to stick your head up a little bit and and think about that next move in, in the example we were just talking about. Yeah, I think as you're starting out, you, you surely want to have solid technical professional skill. I mean, that's, that's going to be... Uh, I don't know if it's assumed, but it, it surely is a good foundation to build from. But I think the differentiator then is how how do you work with others? How do you fit into the culture? You know, that's one thing a lot of people, young people don't necessarily think about or when they're interviewing, ask a lot of questions. How would, you know, I think a good question for uh, anybody in an interview is, well, how would you describe the culture of your company 
or why do you like working at your company? I mean, those shouldn't be for the interviewer from that company. Those should be easy questions to answer. And if they can't, then they probably should have somebody else out there. So I think that uh, that's probably more of a differentiator, especially early on. But you kind of need both. <laughs> you need the technical professional skill, and you also need an ability to work with people and get things done with and through other people. And eventually uh, in leading other people, if that's your, your choice. There, there are different career paths you can take, too. And if you really like the technical professional side, there's the, you should find a company that will still promote you and give you more responsibility but keep you technical professional. But if you want to move up into leadership and management, that's a more typical career path, and you can find that at any organization. You bring up a, a good question there that your question that people should be asking uh, the interviewer at something, which kind of makes me think about in, in your experience, having worked uh, in industry for a long time, hired a lot of people, I'm sure fired a few along the way. Uh, you've seen people fit and not fit well in an organization. What is your advice on what a new college graduate should be looking at in a company, um, aside from culture, like you mentioned, but is there anything else specific they should be looking for when they're, when they're interviewing with different companies to make sure that it was going to be a good fit for them? The one other key thing, uh, there's about three or four questions that I, in general terms, have students ask in the interviewer. One is, what am I going to be doing? <laughs> uh, you know, you don't want to end the interview and have no idea what sort of assignment you might be taking on for four months. Uh, or for your career start. Uh, so what what would I be doing? Uh, maybe can you give me, in, in that same vein, can you, can you give me some examples of typical assignments for uh, you know new engineers or co-ops or interns in, in your organization? So that's one category. Another one is what sort of tools do I need to be good at to be good and productive at your company? And that might be CAD, you know, it might be some sort of software program. It's Excel. <laughs> it's Excel. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah. Don't, don't ask that question. Just get really good at Excel. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and then I think the big, the third one is uh, the culture and ask something about that. I think in an interview too, the fourth thing that you kind of want to do is to demonstrate the fact that you're interested by your research. So not, just do the research, but ask a good question. It's not like, uh, you know, where's your company? What sort of product do you put out? No, those are bad ones. <laughs> if you can dig even beyond their website, I mean, they're going to assume you're going to look at their websites. You know, call their company up, stop by, get some literature, uh, talk to somebody, uh, and ask an astute question that kind of shows off the fact that you've researched their company thoroughly. And you know why... And, and that's a key thing. If you can answer the question, why do you want to work at this company doing this work? You know, if you can give a good answer to that with passion, that's another thing. If you feel it, let it show. Um, I know we had one co-op company that would typically have the students, they'd interview them on campus to kind of screen it a little bit, invite them out to their company, walk them around. But the key thing was they would look at them during this walk around, showing them the products they're working on currently, putting them in a conference room with executives and asking them questions. The student that was looking at their phone and wasn't engaging didn't get an offer. But the student that had their hand up all the time digging, I remember one student was walking around one of those uh, 
shop visits, and he was digging in scrap bins or wanted to. I said, can I have this? Can I take this home? Well, he started his career there, bottom line, mm -hmm. and, and in a very unique, positive way uh, with a dual degree. He, he was going to be an apprentice, skilled tradesman, and he had a bachelor's in engineering, a very good student. Uh, I assume he's doing well there. I'd love to find out. <laughs> Well, I think what's interesting about your experience, Tom, is working with a lot of students that are hands-on like that. Or, you know, what what are your current thoughts on skilled trades versus a bachelor's degree in engineering? Like, I, I mean, it's not something we've brought out a lot in this show, but I, mm -hmm. it continues to be, I think, a relevant question for people. Because, I mean, if a lot of people like hands-on, I don't like, I don't know, people get pushed into engineering. Yeah, I'm just curious as to your current thoughts on on that, if it makes sense or what, what your thoughts are. I think they're both great career paths. I mean, skill trades, maybe the people data things, that would be the, if you really like things a lot and also like data. I mean, you don't work in skill trades without handling a bunch of data and computers um, and people. You still have to get along with people, but maybe spend a little more time on things and then a fair amount of time on data and a little less on people. And you still could be very, I think it's a great career path. It's not one I chose or one, uh, you know, for a good reason, personality and, and skill set. Um, but I think if you, if you have the ability to handle calculus and, and do a, be an engineer, go for it. Um, I know I was at a high school one time where the career advisor was basically saying, if you got an engineering degree, you'd be uh, serving French fries at McDonald's. And I, <laughs> I, I was, you know, I, I followed up with that and I, I was ready to stand up in the audience and say, you're crazy. You know, if you have that skill set, go for it. If you have the skill set of a skilled tradesperson, go for that. I think either one's fine. Both needed, both good futures. That's really good advice and, and, and opinion on that. Yeah, it's something we haven't talked about, but important paths for people to consider. Uh, if you're if you're pre-college or something, uh, yeah, definitely consider that too. Um, I want I want to get your advice real quick here, though, on someone who's who's maybe has a few years of experience, uh, or or maybe a little more than a few, um, but is looking to kind of make a career change, or at least thinking about an, you know, they're maybe they're not happy in their current position or with their current company or something. Um, is there anything specific that someone, uh, early to mid career should be thinking about when making a job change that someone just right out of college, uh, doesn't have to worry about or think about networking? I mean, in, in all cases that would apply to anybody, but I think especially when you've been out of college for a number of years, maybe a decade or two, uh, don't, uh, just work, you know, uh, stay within your profession, you know, join a organization that is, uh, in your degree, for instance, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and, and be active in that, or Project Management Association, or, you know, et cetera, and uh, keep that network going. I mean, my, my job at U of M really happened because a gentleman from Grand Valley who we work together and we respect each other a lot uh, recommended me. Uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have had that great opportunity. I've enjoyed it, and I miss it right now. I wish... I hope that I can get back to it. I think they do too, but due to the virus and their budget, that's just not happening this fall. And I don't really want to sit in front of a lot of people face to face and I do it virtually, but anyway, <laughs> so that happened because of networking. So I think that's really key. Um, and there's a lot of tools to do that. I mean, LinkedIn is, is good. Look for an association that, um, 
and find people at companies that you might want to work at. There's also other tools that help you. If you're, let's say you want to, you think you want to work in this other industry, but you're not sure what companies, well, you can get online and find out what other companies there are in those industries. Uh, and there's tools to see which ones are hiring. So there's a lot of online tools and I've uh, dealt with a couple of them that people can, can dig into and, and help kind of broaden their uh, horizon and broaden their networks. People hire people. So <laughs> you really need to stay in touch with other people, even though right now you got a good job or maybe it's a job you've had for 10 years and you want to try something different for a good reason. Maybe that learning curve is a little uh, less than it used to be or that you want it to be. Stay in touch with people. I mean, I think, so Marissa in our previous episode, she, similar thing with Society of Women Engineers, how that's really just enabled her to have a bunch of access to a bunch of companies and a lot of experiences. She, I think, also embodied that as well. Because I think it's so true. It's, I mean, networking continues to be incredibly important. And I, I don't see that going away because, you know, so you say that and I maybe try to emphasize my point that I was blabbing on earlier with this idea of thinking about it from the company. You know, if you're a manager and you're trying to hire someone, and you have someone you trust coming to you saying, hey, here's a person. She's amazing. I know she'll fit well. I know she has the technical ability. Like, And you have that and you have 10,000 resumes that got that you got from Indeed. Like, it's Imagine being that person sitting in that chair. It's obvious you're, the network can be leveraged really, really strong because if you put yourself in the position of the hiring manager. Um, and so, yeah, I just... But you gotta you gotta work at it, you know. It's a, it's an effort, but it can be a fun effort, you know. If you're not big into the people thing, it maybe maybe it's a little bit more work than it is for Tom, who just likes to go golfing with everyone. So it's a little, <laughs> a little bit easier. But um, you know, so for so for some, it maybe seem like more work, but it's still important, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Well, and in your example, Troy, that person will be considered. I mean, that ten thousand resumes, a lot of them won't. I mean, they'll they'll screen them down. They won't get to them. But that one person with a personal recommendation will be looked at. That resume will be read and probably will get an interview. That's powerful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So continuing on Brennan's theme here of, you know, the few year in engineer, um, I'm curious as to your, you know, your being a manager of, of those types of engineers, what your recommendations are for them. And we've talked a little, a little bit about if you're three to five years in, maybe you want to think about changing it up. Is there... Other things that relatively new engineers should be thinking about um, in terms of their career development? Well, surely further education. It might not be a degree. It might just be taking a, a course or uh, getting a certificate or attending a seminar in, in areas of interest, especially if they apply to the organization that you're part of. Also kind of exploring what else is going on. You know, keep your eyes open laterally. I know at, at Steelcase, I had a bunch of different jobs in those 17 years. And a couple of times, it's just like, oh, you're doing that? I'd like to do that. And uh, sometimes that person who started in that left for something else, and I was number two. Great. <laughs> uh, that took me to Europe three times. I'm, you know, I, I was a, a consultant for new product development on basically anything that was going on with Steelcase. So that was a lot of fun, a lot of wonderful experiences. And that all started uh, because I just kind of kept my eyes open. And I was part of a project team that w went through a process of this design for competitiveness. And I raised my hand and said, I'd like to do this, you know. And eventually I was leading it. And uh, that was a lot of fun. So I think keep your eyes open, not just one. Uh, yeah. 
there's a, there's an interesting transition period. You know, we talked about your first year and a half, you're in this absorbing mode and then you start to crest on that par- parabola that you described, you know, it's okay. Well, I, I'm in the meetings now and I'm saying things and I feel confident, you know, I'm two, three years in, I'm definitely, I definitely know I don't know a lot, but I know some things really well. I'm feeling really stable. And I can imagine being in that spot and being like, okay, well, I probably should be thinking about some other things too. And your point is excellent. Like if you're feeling stable and comfortable, like use that stability to look around, stick your head back up out of the sand a little bit. Now, you know, just uh, to see what the next move might be. And again, yeah, that's not a move out of the company. It's not not even necessarily a move up. It's continuing to move you in the direction you want to go in. Because if your head's not up looking and you're not building the network or what you need to be doing, you might miss it and not have known. Um, yeah. So I think the, the point is well taken. I guess that's just my long, long elaboration on what you just said. Well, in the networking too, and that I think it fits in here, Troy, is that you want to have people know you as a capable budding engineer, you know, a developing engineer and good at this. And then also interested in maybe what they could influence and, and help you obtain. Um, not just as a, a guy, a fun guy to go golfing with, but you know, you kind of have to have them get to know your capability technically, professionally, and personally, um, and see how that fits within their interests. Sure. And that takes a little effort. Yeah. And if you're an introvert, that isn't a natural thing. Right. Totally. Agree. You just want to get, put your head down and keep the job going, but that is, doesn't always, uh, help you in the next job. You know, you need to have people understand who you are and what you can do for them. Right. It seems like an easy way to lead to a 25-year career of one they don't necessarily like. Maybe you liked it for the first three or five or ten, but then it got a little dry and you just never never moved on. So, yeah, I think that's, that's great. One other thought I have is, uh, you know, even if you find a job you love, not every day is going to be wonderful. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember one project I was leading uh, – putting in a material handling system for IBM, I, I basically bled, swatted, uh, got some arrows in the back. And at times it was, it was painful, but it was successful in the end. And it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I learned so much and some of that was through pain and suffering. Uh, so keep looking for the job you like, but don't expect Nirvana. It's, it's going to have some, uh, no, nothing. Even periods perfect. of time. Yeah. Like I, I, I think that, I should say it explicitly at least in one episode, but yeah, there's definitely elements of jobs that suck and it's there's There's definitely periods of time where it's not going to be great. Really. I think what we're trying to do with this podcast is help people get so that in aggregate, if you look at your career of 20 years, like you've and hopefully in most of that been really enjoying what you do. Cause yeah, there's, you're going to get assignments. You're not going to like, there's going to be a team that you're going to work on that that one person really grinds your gears and it's just really annoying. And that is, yeah, I guess just part of it. But you know, that, that doesn't mean you just stick your head farther in the sand. You got to keep it up. You got to keep networking so that you can still be open to opportunities and, and be controlling your destiny. Um, well, and be a little flexible. Cause I think of some of the job changes I had and, and basically other than the 11 years in the career center at Grand Valley, I pretty much changed it up every three or four years, but sometimes it wasn't me and my efforts. It was corporate reorganization or a reduction in workforce. Um, and other times, or one time, the one company was bought by somebody else, and I I didn't like the somebody else and the way they managed. And the vice president that left said, "Do you want to come work with me?" I'm kind of going, "Sure, I like you. I like what you're doing." 
So you're not always in control of the environment too. So be a little flexible and adaptable. And but but keep kind of driving towards your interests, you know, what what you want to do and what you know you're good at. And lots of times that those two kind of come together. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I think you've, you've shared a lot of great advice with us here uh, on the show. As we're, we're coming up on time, though, I want to give you one last one last opportunity. Is there any any other advice or any other words of wisdom you want to share with uh, someone either in college or early in their career to, to either give them some encouragement or that, that one tip they might need to, to help them move to where they want to be? Well, I think overall, just enjoy college. It's a good time of life. I mean, Right now, it's kind of tough with the, the virus going on and our world becoming virtual or being virtual versus physical, but uh, that's part of adaptation too, and I believe college still could be fun <laughs> in a little different way. But anyway, college is a good time of life. Uh, enjoy as much as you can. Have some fun along the way too. I, I've always taken every... Every day of vacation, I've never given a day of vacation up. I work hard. <laughs> I've always worked hard, but I've also played and, uh, you know, enjoy life. Yeah, I love that. I remember being a senior and everyone's like, oh, I'm so excited. To, I'm so excited to get to work. I'm done with school. And I, I just kept sitting there being like, I know we work a lot. And I know it's Sunday at 8 p.m. and we're working hard right now, but I'm pretty sure it's going to stink a lot when we get on the other side too. Like I know the money will be nice, but waking up at eight o'clock every day or seven o'clock to be at work at eight o'clock, I think that's going to get, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that's awesome. Cause I think it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to be, you know, especially grinding through senior design your senior year, excited to be done with school and in the industry, but, um, school is pretty cool too. It, it has definitely some advantages. I mean, I feel very blessed. Um, uh... And, and try to be you know, a blessing to others. My favorite teacher of all time was Professor George Courageant at U of M Dearborn. I was the only student who went to his funeral and spoke there. His son that I'm still in touch with says that he liked me better than him, but that's not true. But I loved him. And, and he had so many pearls of wisdom. And, and one of them was just teach the subject. You know, he was a teacher, but teach life. And I think you, you kind of translate that, be significant in other people's lives. Uh, and, and I am just so thankful for any opportunity that I might have had to help others along the way. I, that truly warms my heart. If, and I don't take credit for that. I just feel blessed. <laughs> Definitely. That's awesome. With that, I think, I think we got to end it there, okay. Tom. That's fantastic, man. I really, really appreciate your time coming on the show. And I, yeah, it, everything everything I could have hoped it to be in terms of great advice for people listening. I know, Thank yeah, you. you got a wealth of knowledge and wealth of experience, and I'm so glad that you're in the position you were in. I mean, I'm glad you retired now and enjoying that. I'm glad that you're able to go golf in, but I'm I'm also happy that you were able to help out all the students you did because I know that your experience, you know, you're giving back, and that's great. And I think that's uh, you know your last bit of advice, there, just giving back too. I think that's also really important. It you know if you're successful to give to give back on that and help others, I think. I think I think there's a lot of people that look back on their life and they're they're really really proud about the time they gave other people and not necessarily the the work thing that got done or whatever. It's yep. it's easy it's easy to get caught in the work grind, staying until eight o'clock working, but and then that person comes up to your desk and says, "Hey, can you help me with this?" And you go, "I'm so busy, I can't do anything. I can't do anything." But you you often look back on that helping that other person as as the bigger achievement of the day than um, absolutely. Check, well, check, yeah, oh, checking off the next box on the Excel to-do list. So, um, but Excel super important though. Maybe we should end there. Yeah, we're joking about Excel, but we're not. We're, we're getting in the industry. 
four and a half years ago. Since then, I've expanded my spreadsheet to include 58 projects. I've been completed 54 of them, and I'm working on the next four. So <laughs> what am I going to do next? I'm going to build a boat starting in March. Okay. A rowboat. Cedar hey. strip. There you go. Never, never stop learning. No. All right, Tom. Well, thanks for your time, man. Have a, have a great day. Thank you. you. Thanks so much. I truly enjoyed it. Bye. Tom is the most experienced person I think we've had on the show so far, and it definitely shines through in all the advice that he's given. Like, yeah. tons of good advice from perspectives inside and outside of like working at a company. Super yeah. valuable. He's had two careers, both very related to the, the goal of this podcast. So a perfect, a really great fit to have on. I think he was able to bring out a lot of really, really good elements for people, which was which was awesome. I think for for me, his interview questions, um, thinking about it that way, you know, a lot of times they say, well, I have interview questions, but what one should I have? You know, is, is I think there was something like, you know, what would I do in this role? Um, what are some example projects? How would you describe the company culture? And then like a research-based question that was obvious that you had done a bunch of research on the company more than just looking at the web page. Like, I think those are some great examples of interview questions that not only are good questions, but also help you to, to realize it's okay to ask, what does a typical day look like? What What is the culture like? Those are good questions to ask because you want to know that before you start. And I think if, you know, again, that whole, the whole idea of like thinking from the company's perspective, we talked about like, if you're a hiring manager and you hear someone ask those types of questions, you're going to know that they're getting good information. And, and if, and if you give them an offer and they accept it and they've asked those questions, they already know what they know what they're getting into. And, and I think, I don't know, they're just great questions. And I'm, for some reason, I was kind of thinking there was almost like a taboo on some of that, like asking those type of questions. I don't really know why I thought that, like why they're maybe cause you don't, you don't want to ask like a, a dumb question, but you don't know what those are, but I don't know. Regardless, I guess we're saying it now, like ask, what what am I going to do every day? Ask about the culture. Those are important. You can do it. Boom. There you go. I, I think that was a big takeaway for me. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's interesting. Yeah, like asking, you think it's like, I shouldn't ask what the role is because I'm supposed to know, but I've gotten yeah. to phone screens where like the recruiter has just read the job description back to me. Like I didn't even read it at all when I applied. And so like, that's just a starting point. Obviously, like they don't list everything in there. Ask more specific questions. It's going to show that you're interested and you really want to make sure that you're, you're making sure the job is the right fit for you. Right. Um, so definitely keep asking those. Um, I think uh, we talked about it a lot here and mainly because of, of the co-op program that he kind of oversaw there. But experiencing what you think you want to do as soon as possible to me is super important. Um, like we said, it's going to help you figure out what you like and what you don't like. And if you're in college, like do a co-op, do an internship, do something. Uh, but I think if you're also in the early stages of your career, uh, don't think you have to be in your current role for forever, two or three years. And if you're like, I want to try something else, maybe like go and do it, make, make different moves. Even if it's not for more money or for a promotion, if it's within the company moving, you know, the same level, go ahead and do that. And then do it again, maybe in three years, like to really find out what you want to do, because before you settle on something for 25, 30 years, whatever, uh, you should at least experience what's out there. So you can be, be happy and not look back on 25 years and realize you, you didn't like it all what you were doing. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do with this podcast, help people realize what's, what you can do. You know, I know I think there's a lot of things that, you know, I go back to my kind of ignorant self of like things that I, I just think I can't do these things or I, I shouldn't do these things, but that's why we're trying to bring people in to talk about it. You can, and that's okay. And yeah, I don't know, but that's it. Everyone listening, that's the, you can. So, you know, if, yeah. if you want to make a change, you can, and there's different options to do that. So 
So what's stopping you, I guess? You're not stuck. You only think you're stuck. Yeah. So. All right, man. There we go. Until next time. Good to see you, buddy. Indeed. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engineer Your Career with Troy Bauman and Brennan Timrak. For more information about the show, visit our website at eycpodcast.com. There you can find show notes for each episode and get in touch with Troy and I. If you or someone you know are an engineer with an interesting or even not so interesting career journey and would like to be on the show, go on the website, send us a short bio, and we may just invite you to come on and share your story. And finally, if you want to show your support, please rate, review, like, or subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice.